Hi. <laughs> Bryce is walking. Bryce is walking. Bryce is picking something up. Our key scripture this morning comes from Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, I uh, invite you to welcome to open up there. Good news for you this morning from Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? I don't know how you feel about social media. Social media is everywhere. All the kids are social media-ing. I don't know. I'm making up my own words as I go. Shouldn't surprise you. Uh, But what I'm amazed about now is, you know, I, I feel like to a degree we have never been a very forgiving culture. Uh, we tend to hold people's mistakes against them. And social media has made it about a million times worse. Because now, the stupid things you've said are recorded. And if you don't delete them, they're still there. Some of you may be aware that this came back on someone just this week. This week was the NFL draft. And a young man named uh, Josh Allen was going to be uh, drafted as one of the top quarterbacks in the draft. And the day before the draft, Yahoo Sports printed an article about things he put on Twitter when he was 14. And he said things he shouldn't have said. And there's really no excuse for what he said. He was 14. Can you imagine... Can you imagine if the worst things you said when you were 14 were recorded somewhere so that people could pull them up and look at them? And then the question came out, well, if he said this when he was 14, is he still this person? And he was horrified, of course. He was horrified by this. And he dropped, theoretically, he dropped lower in the draft because these things came out about him. And he tried to explain to everyone, that's not who I am. I was quoting this song. I was quoting this TV show. I was doing this. I was 14. That's not who I am. But people didn't really believe him because he made this mistake. 
This is the world we live in. You make a mistake and it's held against you. I want to tell you a different story and it involves my wife. (laughs) Hi, honey. I meant to tell you I was going to talk about you this morning. As many, of you, as many of you are aware, because I keep telling you about it, um, I struggle with depression. And uh, several years ago, I hit rock bottom. And when I hit rock bottom, I kind of lost sense of myself. I lost sense of who I was. I wasn't really sure about anything anymore. I knew I loved my children. And let me tell you, at that time, I couldn't do anything but just say what I thought or what I felt. And so one night, Nish and I sat in our living room, and we had a conversation, and I told her, I don't know if I love you anymore. I, I said that. And those around Nisha that found out about this and that knew this, her family and and friends and people that loved her and cared about her, some of them told her that she should leave me, that I was a mess, that I was a wreck, that I had said such hurtful things, which let's be straight, that is a hurtful thing. And they (laughs) sent her books, what to say or what to do when your husband says he doesn't love you anymore. Um... They encouraged her to take care of herself and to sort of let me sort out myself on my own. But Nisha did something that is pretty unexpected. And that is she did not leave me. She did not tell me how hurtful my words were. She did not demand that I apologize. She did not tell me that I had better fix myself. She didn't demand anything from me at all, even though she had every right to do so. Instead... She sat there on the couch as I said those things and held my hand. And when I would cry uncontrollably, she would hold me and pull me close to her. She wouldn't say anything negative about me to anyone. And if anyone said anything negative about me, she lashed out at them. Nisha lashed out at them. She refused to leave my side. She looked me in the eyes, the man who said he may not love her anymore, and said everyone else can just take a hike. She was less kind than that. But she made it clear she wasn't going anywhere. And this choice that she made saved my life. Once I got better, I understood the love of God in a different way because of my wife. Because you see, we live in a world where everything we did, we have done, we are reminded of all the time. We are reminded of how we did this or how we did that or how we failed or how we said or how we thought or how we expressed or how we hurt. We are reminded of these things all the time because the world does not let us get past those things. But through my wife, I understood what it meant to not have my sins held against me. I understood what it felt like to be held on to and for someone to refuse to let me go. And I understood what it meant to know that I could not be separated from that love. Church, the love of God is like that. It is a love that will not let us go. That holds on to us even though we say hurtful things. 
even though we do things we shouldn't. Because the love of God is a saving love. It is a life-changing love. And this morning we are here to celebrate that. Amen? Our chains are gone. We have been set free. Our God, our Savior, has ransomed us. Our sins are no longer held against us. That applause is for Misha. So I told you uh, a story earlier this morning about Misha and myself. And and there's two things that uh, I want to add to that story. And one is that I love my wife very, very much. I do. I love my wife very, very much. And one of the reasons why I wanted to share that story with you is because I I do find it to be so extraordinary. Um, And I know it's extraordinary in my life. But have you ever done something you wish you could take back, but no matter how much you want to take it back, you can't? And whoever you have offended or hurt or said this thing to is not helping in you taking it back? Back when I was in, uh, a junior in high school, they were opening up a new store uh, in Clovis, where I lived, and um, it was a new chain that was going to be all over the country, and the store was called Old Navy. That's right. It was one of the first, like, I think 20 uh, stores uh, in, here in the state, and Old Navy was hiring a bunch of employees to come in and to help set up the store and to work there once it opened, and so... Uh, it was not very far from our house, so my sisters and I went down to apply for jobs at Old Navy. And uh, we went to an interview, and I know the three of us were there, and I think there were other people in the room as well um, that were interviewing because they were doing these big group interviews. And, <laughs> and they asked us some sort of question like, um, so why should we hire you for this job instead of someone else? You know, kind of that kind of question. And uh, so I immediately, when it was my turn, um, I immediately pointed out that um, I have had to do a lot of work where my sisters hadn't over the years, and uh, <laughs> that um, so I was a better worker, and that I was probably because of that experience, I was more conscientious than they were. I had done different things to mow lawns and something like that. Uh, <laughs> What, what it, I, whatever I said and whatever the situation was, I threw them under the bus and then I got in the bus and I drove the bus and then I backed the bus up and then I kind of drove forward again and then I jumped up and down in the bus. Um, and I don't think it was because of this, but the end result was I was hired and they weren't. Yeah, I, I don't... I, I, I was just a kid. Like, I didn't have that much pull, right? I don't, I refuse to take responsibility for the fact that uh, I was hired and, and they weren't hired. But um, that was a really difficult thing to live down. And I realized it as soon as we left the interview that I had made a huge, huge mistake. I'm pretty sure that I drove the three of us there. So the three of us had to drive home. And we had a lively conversation about 
about that particular moment. And uh, it was something that, that was very difficult to live down. And you may all be judging me for that lapse uh, in my history, but you have a story like that, so just look in the mirror, baby. <laughs> the last few weeks, we have been looking at the story of David, the, the smaller story within the big story of God and his people. Uh, and the story of David is such a remarkable story. Um, it, is, it is filled with such incredible highs and such devastating lows. And, and the story, if you've been here with us or if you just know it, the story starts out um, with David throwing himself completely in with God. He is... And a nation of people that are afraid and are not seeking out God, David is unabashedly calling on God and has so much confidence in him. And he knew that if he called on the name of the Lord, that God would bring him the success that he needed. And so he, he faced Goliath on the field of battle, the giant that should have destroyed him. And he defeated him with the power of God. He, he becomes a leader in the Israelite army. And he doesn't lose a battle. He became king and he brought the nation of Israel to a place that they had only dreamed of. And all along, the thing that is so remarkable about it, the thing that is so different from what we've seen in other people is that David refused to take any credit for what was happening. He gave all praise, all glory, all honor to God. In all things. And because of that, God was with him and he just could do no wrong until he completely forgot about God and became the worst possible version of what we can be. He committed adultery with another man's wife and then had that man killed to cover up the fact that he had made her pregnant. It was ugly. Really, really ugly. And David was confronted, and in response, he begged for mercy. God said that he would forgive David, and he did forgive David, but God also said, there are consequences for the things you have done. You know, in a lot of ways, the David story is a good chance for us to take a step back again and to look at everything that's happening because in a lot of ways this story is a microcosm for everything that's been happening. David's story in a lot of ways is the story that we have been looking at. We have seen God try to have meaningful relationship with his creation and we have seen his creation reject him, forget about him, and worship other gods time and time again. And here's the thing about that as we've been journeying through this. This is the 13th lesson. It is easy to get desensitized to what has happened. Because sometimes the way it's communicated within the story is just like the people believed in God and then they didn't. And especially like if you read through the book of Judges, it is a desensitizing book. And we talked about the cycle that the people went through over and over again. But here's the thing about the story of David. The story of David brings everything down to a very personal level. We see one person 
stand up for God. We see one person succeed. We see one person get it. We see one person worship and do amazing things. And then we see that one person fall and have to deal with what he had done. Great victory is possible when humanity sticks with God, but inevitably there is something that enters into the relationship with God and His people. We call that thing in churches sin. Sin enters into the relationship with God and His people. We talked about this last week, I believe, but there are three major Hebrew words, word groups that communicate the concept of sin in the Old Testament. And it starts out with the idea that there is a divine standard. There is a way that God wants things to be done. And so the principal word for sin is the word, I don't, I don't think I pronounced these correctly, so just, is the word hata, which means to miss the mark. So for whatever reason, a person does not live up to the divine standard. They miss the mark of what they are supposed to hit. And that word is most often defined in the Bible as the word sin. The second word is the word pesa. In the vocabulary of sin, it indicates a conscious revolt against the divine standard. So it's rebellion or transgression. You are Someone is choosing to do something other than what God wants. And the last word is a1, which is a deviation from or twisting of the standard. And why I wanted to bring this up to you again is because it tells us that sin is not just an accident, right? Like there are times we are violating God's will where maybe we're not totally aware that we're violating God's will. You know, maybe we've missed the mark. But more than that, what goes on when we sin most often is that, yes, we are missing the mark, but we are also rebelling against God and and the worst possible scenarios, we are twisting what God had intended and turning it into something else. And haven't we seen these three things happen over and over again in the story? That people continue to make choices where either they're blundering into something, they are choosing to worship other gods instead of God, or they are twisting what God had intended for their own purposes and means. We see this over and over again in the story, and I'm so glad that we are past all of that. God has shown remarkably that he is willing to forgive. He is infinitely more patient than we are. He is willing to forgive. And in this case where David did these terrible things, God forgave him. But this is where there can sometimes be a sticking point with us and God and what we do and how God responds to it. Because there is a question that in reality we should ask. And the question is this. If God forgave David, then why did so many awful things need to happen? Couldn't the forgiveness of God, shouldn't the forgiveness of God have made everything okay. Now, you may have an answer formulated in your mind already, but I want you to pause for a second and let the gravity of that question sink in for a moment. Because it's an important question. 
If God forgives, then why are there consequences to sin? Why did David have to face such severe consequences if God was loving and chose to forgive? So, that's the core question we want to talk about a little bit this morning. But there's another question where we really need to start out. Okay, so that question is the back end of our mind, all right? If we sin, why are there consequences? But here is the first question that we really need to look at and answer today, and that is this. Why is our sin such a big deal? Why is it so important? Why does it matter? I mean, can't God just overlook this? And the story of David tells us why our sin matters so much. If you remember from last week, if you were here, God sends Nathan the prophet to go and confront David. And Nathan comes to David, went to David, and he told him this story about a man who had one sheep and a rich man who had all kinds of sheep. And the rich man was going to throw a party and he wanted to feed his friends. And so he went and he took the one sheep from the poor man, his prized possession, killed it and ate it with his friends. And David goes off the handle. He's like, this guy should be tortured. He should be all these different things. He is so angry about it. And then Nathan spoke these words. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the one who has done these things. Now listen to this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord, by doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter, utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. Okay. There's a really important point that is made here about everything that has gone on recently in the life of David. David, did David do something wrong to Uriah? Yes, on multiple fronts, right? Did David do something wrong to Bathsheba? Yes, the forgotten victim of this story, who had no choice and then loses her child. But who did David's sin matter to the most? God. It mattered the most to God. Now that's not to play down Uriah and Bathsheba. 
But the sin mattered the most to God more than to anyone else. Why? Why did it matter the most to God? Because by doing these things, David was not just just committing adultery, lying, and murdering somebody. By doing these things, Nathan said, he showed utter contempt for God. Think about those words for a moment. When he sinned, he showed utter contempt for God. In those moments when he sinned, he was saying ultimately that God did not matter in that place and that time. He ignored all that God means and all that God stands for. And in fact, by taking these things for himself and acting like he did, he was acting like God did not exist at all. As Eli Weissel famously said, the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. You don't matter anymore. This is a big deal to God. It is hurtful because he does something God doesn't want him to do. But understand this, it is also personal. Because it is a violation of who God is. And by doing these things in such a way, David ultimately says to God, you don't matter. I will do what I want. And I will take what I want. And there's nothing you can do about it. Let's back up for a second. Our sin is paid for through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But just because our sin was paid for, it doesn't mean our sin no longer matters. And that is the trap that we fall into. Sin matters to God because of all that it says about what we really think about Him. And God cannot pretend that our sin does not show our utter contempt of him. And in those moments where we choose something besides him, we are saying, God, we despise you. Feels harsh, doesn't it? But we see it here. Nathan speaks for God. This is a big deal to him. And God can't pretend that our sin is just something he can overlook. So does that change our view of forgiveness? Well, I want you to notice something. David, in his reflection upon this time, rejoices in the forgiveness of God. He rejoices in the forgiveness of God. Listen to these words. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, open rebellion, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. 
When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad. You righteous sing, all you who are upright in heart. There are some things that I want us to notice here. First of all, David makes a really important statement, and that is this. When he tried to hide his sin from the Lord, it did him no good. It was only when he acknowledged what he had done wrong that he was able to find healing and forgiveness. Number two, he makes this statement. When we are forgiven, God is not holding our sin against us. The violation we have committed to who he is, God does not hold that against us. In Psalm 103, David wrote these words, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Understand what David is saying in both of these passages where he's expressing He's reflecting on his life and what he's done and what God has done. And it's this. David feels true forgiveness. Why? Because he did not get what he really deserved. What did David deserve? Death. By law, people. By God's law, he deserved death. This is what he... Not to even mention how personally he hurt God. God had every right to take David's life from him. Every right to take David's life from him. And yet, God chose to do something else. He chose to do something else. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. David was forgiven, but here's the hard thing about this story and the hard thing that we need to understand. 
Just because God forgives us of our sin, it doesn't mean that our sin ceases to matter. And because our sin matters, there are consequences when we commit sin. Things go wrong when we violate God. So in spite of all of these, in spite of the forgiveness that David received, there were still consequences for the contempt he showed for God. And again, we get back to the first question. Well, but if God forgives, then why are there consequences? But you already know the answer to this question, don't you? When we do something we should not do, there are always consequences, right? When we do something we should not do, there are always consequences of some kind. When we hurt someone, they may forgive, they may forgive us, but they probably are never going to trust us again. Or it may take time for them to trust us again. When we show ourselves to be a certain way, we let the worst part of ourselves come up, it takes time to convince other people that that's not who we are. Say a harsh word to someone sometime and see how long it takes for them to believe you are gentle and loving. We know this is true in our own lives, don't we? We do. Well, isn't God above those things? Yes. God is above those things because God chooses to forgive when we ask for forgiveness. But God cannot undo what's happening when we do these things. Because there are consequences for sin. Which takes us back one step further. Here is the message that the story has been telling us all along. Life with God brings incredible blessing. Life away from God only brings bad. God reaches out to us and what does He want for us to do? He wants us to live with Him. Why? Because He's a control freak? No! Because he knows that life with him is better. And yet, what do we do? We choose other things all the time. And what comes with us choosing other things? Bad. Adam and Eve were told not to eat one piece of fruit. And what did they do? They ate one piece of fruit. And the world changed. Because life with God is blessing and life away from God only brings bad. It is naive for us to expect that the bad we do will not reap bad in return. That the hurt we commit will not bring hurt back. That is not how things work. There is always a price to be paid. Church, there is always a price to be paid. Always. So what consequences did David have to face? Well, first of all, the child that he had with Bathsheba died. 
And David humbled himself before God, asking for mercy, but the child still died. But that, as awful as that was, was just the tip of the iceberg. David's life falls apart. It falls apart. It becomes a soap opera of epic proportions. It really does. God warned him that there would be direct consequences within his family. And here's what happens. The violence that he committed begets violence. And the sexual sin that he committed begets sexual sin. The things that he puts out there, his family gives back. And I think it's important to note because God said this through Nathan that he was going to have these things happen. That these things do happen in part because God allows them to happen. But if we pay more attention to what's going on, we see that it's David's poor choices that set the table for everything that comes after his fall. God is not inventing things, in other words, to punish David with. The things that happen are things that have been coming because David made other choices and not just with Uriah and Bathsheba. The first thing that happens is he's got how many wives? Do you remember? He has seven and then he marries Bathsheba, which makes eight. He's got eight wives. Those wives have children. So, there are, what would they be, half-brothers and sisters all over the place. And Amnon, one of his sons, fell in love with Tamar, one of his daughters, from different mothers. And he wanted her so badly that he lured her to his room under the guise of being sick and asked her to sleep with him. And she said, no way, this, no, no. No. But he couldn't handle that no, so he takes her and he rapes her. And then he kicked her out of his room and refused to let her try to make herself right before God or anything else. He despised her. When David found out about all this, he was very angry, but guess what he did? Nothing doesn't do anything about it. He mourns, oh, this is terrible, but he doesn't do anything about it. Tamar had a brother named Absalom, and Absalom was really angry, really, really angry about what had happened. And for two years, Absalom waits for his opportunity. And they need to go out into the fields to check on the sheep, David would go with him at times. Absalom says, you don't, you don't need to go. Why don't I just take Amnon with me? And they get out there and Absalom kills Amnon in revenge for his sister. I'm sorry, let me back up one second because I think this is relevant. He got him drunk and then killed him, which reminds us of something a little bit, right? Right? What was David's attempt with Uriah to get him drunk? And then. So Absalom was in a fraid, so he ran away. 
And David didn't want, uh, David wanted to go to him and he wanted to try to bring things back into order, but guess what David did? Nothing. He did nothing. Um, so Absalom became more angry and bitter and he ended up being brought back to the capital, to Jerusalem, but he had to stay on the outside of the capital. He couldn't come in and see David because David said, I want you back, but I, really don't, I can't have you back because of what you've done. So now Absalom is being punished for doing something he thought was just when David didn't do anything to protect his... See how messy this is? Like, it's just, it is just a wreck. It's just a wreck. And um, so Absalom uh, is brought back, but he's, he's in exile. So listen to this. This is what he does. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge to the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Okay, he's, he's the first uh, biblical politician in the strictest sense of the word that we see. And listen to what he does. He stands outside the city and he waits for people who are coming. And in what mental condition are these people? They are angry, they feel disenfranchised, something's wrong, they want justice, they're not getting justice. And Absalom sits outside the city because they're coming to see the king and what does he say? You can't see the king. There's nobody there. But I, you know, if, if I were judge, I'd take care of this. And then he hugs them and kisses them and sends them on their way. And eventually people begin to believe this story that he was telling them. So Absalom had himself declared king. He had himself declared king and gathered an army to march on David in the palace. And David was afraid that he had lost the people, so he got all of his family and army together, and he's like, let's go. And, and they run away from Absalom and his army. But he left ten concubines behind to watch over the palace. So Absalom moves into the palace, takes over, and he says, what should I do with these concubines? And one of his advisors says, well, why don't you sleep with all of them and do it on the roof so that all of Israel will see. So they put a tent on the roof and, and Absalom sleeps with ten women to show everyone how much he hated his dad. Yikes. 
right? And finally, it came time for David to fight Absalom. He didn't want to do it, but it was unavoidable. And so David uh, got his army together, but they said, David, you can't go. And so Joab, his general, takes his army out. And this is what happened. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair, while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I just, saw, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. No, seriously, I did. He was hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet and the troops stopped pursuing Israel for Joab halted them. Then Joab said to a Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, May the enemies of, the, of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he wept, he said, O oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The king covered his face and cried aloud, O oh, my son, Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What a mess. And it's just like God said it would be. The last part of David's life was remarkably different from the first part of his life. It could not be any more different. And David had to live with some terrible consequences because of his sin. But we have to remember that those consequences were the results of the choices that he made. Remember, as Paul says, the wages of sin are death. Because he committed the sin of murder, murder entered his family. He committed sexual sin, sexual sin entered the family. Because he had eight wives, his family was dysfunctional. And that dysfunction showed itself in the most dramatic of ways. God said the king should only have one wife because he had, if he had more, his heart would be led astray. 
but David had eight, which created this crazy family dynamic where Amnon fell in love with his stepsister, and then David didn't do anything about it. Absalom took action, killed his brother, became increasingly bitter, so much so that he wanted to overthrow and humiliate his father. And what is the end result of this? David's family is broken, he's run for his life, and he loses three sons. Because life with God brings blessing, but life away from God does not. And when he chose himself over God, what did it bring? It brought the bad. But here's the amazing thing. Throughout all of these, this craziness, do you know what the constant was? The constant was God. God was there watching, waiting. God was faithful to David. God restored David, put him back on the throne where he was supposed to be. God blessed David so that David's heart project was to build a temple for God. It's what he wanted more than anything else. And God said, you can't do it because there's too much blood on your hands. But David spent the last part of his life gathering things so that his son could build the temple. His son, by the way, was named Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba. What does that say about God's forgiveness? That the man who becomes king and builds a home for God was from David and Bathsheba. David ended his life, some of the last words attributed to him with these, were these. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. He's speaking to God. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent, and now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, statutes, and decrees and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed down, prostrating themselves before the Lord and the king. As much as David did wrong, he did something very right. When all this happens and falls apart, who does he blame? Himself. Does he ask God, God, why are you doing this? No, because what does David know? I did this. Does he curse God? 
for not giving him what he wants? No, because what does he understand? I did this. And when he takes responsibility for what he did, he can rejoice in the salvation of God, even though his life is falling apart around him. We see some important things play out in the story about the true nature of things, and we learn some truths that from this point forward are going to drastically inform the story and where the story goes. First, we have to understand that sin is a real problem for God. It is not something he can overlook, he cannot ignore it, he cannot pretend like it does not happen. And we, as the faithful readers, have to feel this tension. Because the tension matters. That humanity keeps sinning and God keeps having to forgive. And shows disdain for him every time they do. We also see that because our sin matters and because of what it really is, there is always a cost. The kinds of things that we put out there when we sin are going to come back to us. And God cannot simply undo the consequences of the bad choices that we make. It doesn't work that way. To do so would be for him to say, it doesn't really matter what you did. Poof, it's gone. But it does matter. But, God is loving and forgiving. And his great desire is that his people would be restored. And so now, the biggest question of the story so far comes to the surface. What can be done about this? What can be done about this? There is only one answer. And God is going to provide that answer. I'm talking about Jesus. Sin is a problem. Our sin matters. There are consequences. But God wants us to overcome. And so, what does God give to us? A Savior who turns us into overcomers. The problem has to be dealt with. And we can't deal with it. We can't fix it. Can't make it right. But God can. But God can. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your Son, Jesus, who gives us life and health, who gives us peace and love and forgiveness and grace. God, we are guilty of downplaying the way that we turn from you. God, we don't often feel the tension between the choices that we make and what it says about who you are in our lives.
God, may we appreciate this morning that when we choose to rebel against you, that it matters. God, may we accept that when we choose to rebel against you, there is a cost. God, may we understand that you can't just undo what we've done. But Father, we thank you for looking for an answer. For not giving up on us, for not throwing us away, for not doing what any reasonable God or person would have done. That God, you came up with an answer. And so God, we thank you for Jesus. And it says, in his name we pray. Amen. If you have any need for prayer or encouragement this morning, I want to invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.